3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. It is Tuesday the 9th of May at 7am. My name is Carnegie and I'm joined in the studio today by Fung, Ashikin and Ivka. Hello everyone. Morning, Carnegie. Hello. (laughs) How was everyone's weekend? Did anyone do anything fun? I relaxed a lot. I had like my quiet, relaxed week because the week prior I was like grooving the mood and it was hectic. We saw all these lineups, but I'm keen for this weekend because I'm seeing Shredder, who's like this R&B local artist. Um, I'm really keen to hear her live for the first time. So yeah, that's exciting. Love. How was grooving the mood? Grooving the mood was really great. There was... There's actually just too much to say about this. Like, <laughs> it was my first groove-in. Um, my friend ended up um, becoming one of the lineup programmers, which was really cool. So it was really nice to see her doing her thing. But it was an interesting demographic. There was probably, I was like one of the very few Asians at the <laughs> groove-in. Um, yeah, it's out in like Bendigo. I'm from Machuca, so it was really interesting to like go back there, go back into town and like see what's happening. Not much has changed, but um, the vibes were good. <laughs> I, I went years ago and I felt the same. <laughs> good, good to know it's, you know, consistent. Universal. Yeah. <laughs> Any standout performances? Oh, there was oh, there was actually just way too many. I missed out on Skeggs and Ocean Alley. I was really, really upset. Um, one of my favorite songs was like the spring has sprung in the summer. I love that song. Um, I didn't even get to see it because I blanked out. I went on a break because you're just basically standing for seven yeah. hours. Mm. And so I like I fully missed out on that. But um, I watched Genesis Owusu, mm. Slater, um, Forrest Claudette as well, which was just, yeah, just so good. So awesome. Amazing. What about you guys? Anything fun? <laughs> My weekend. I don't have anything as exciting to to tell everyone. But uh, yeah, it's just to go back to, you know, we said this before, but such a good time for live music at the moment. Mm. Lots of things happening, which is really exciting. Absolutely. I was devastated to miss out on twice. <gasps> Yesterday yeah. and the day before. Yeah. Oh my god! My friends went and they were like, oh, it's "It the looked greatest. like an ent- like it was a whole production. yeah, it was yeah." I didn't go, but I <laughs> the TikToks <laughs> were crazy too. I know. I know. Yeah, the zoom in cameras of just your bias. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm consoling myself by telling myself that I will make it to Blackpink, oh. even though I do not have tickets. Real? Yeah, it will happen. Oh, it's yeah. gonna. When happen are they now? coming? Next month. Oh wow! Next Very soon. month yeah. already. Yeah. So we'll put it out there. Yeah, we'll put it out there. Yeah. We this believe in you. We're putting it out there. I'm jealous. The, yeah. What I would do to see Lalisa live. Ooh. Right. Exactly. All right. So what do we have coming up on the show this morning? Yeah, so we've got um, our alternative news segment. We'll be talking about the University of Melbourne um, on strike, Labor's budget, uh, King Charles coronation in contrast to the cost of living, free Palestine, 75 years since Al-Nakba. Um, and then we've got the Psychocinematic podcast with Stephanie Forneza, which is coming up as well. Uh, and then 
Uh, after that, we'll be hearing from Annie McLaughlin from Solidarity Breakfast, who uh, spoke with Tanya DeJong about Driftwood the Musical. Um, it's a story about renowned uh, Austrian-Australian sculptor Karl Daldig and his partner. Um, so that should be really interesting to listen to. Yeah, and then we've got um, uh, another clip from Saturday's Solidarity Breakfast with Annie McLaughlin about the Save the Preston Mar- Market campaign with Laura, just talking about how um, there are plans and it's privatised, it's privately owned and it has been for its whole time, um, and they're planning to knock down around 80% of the market and sell it off to private development. So we'll be talking to an activist who was part of that campaign and who's continuing to do those leaflets and do those stalls to get the community around this and fighting for um, to save the press market. Amazing. And then at 8 o'clock, we'll be speaking with Will Strack, who is the acting secretary at the Victorian Trades Hall Council, about their new campaign to end the misuse of non-disclosure agreements in the workplace. And finally, at 8.15, we'll be speaking with Britt from Harm Reduction Victoria. Um, Britt will be telling us about a vigil that will be taking place tomorrow, Wednesday the 10th of May, outside the State Library. Uh, This is a vigil held for um, Tangaraju, who was executed in Singapore uh, upon... uh, receiving the death penalty um, upon conviction of abetting an attempt to traffic cannabis. Uh, So this is going to be held in memory for Tangaraju as well as others who have uh, died from uh, under the death penalty in Singapore. Great. So we've got a big show coming up this morning. We'll be right back with the news headlines after this. The Uruk Justice Commission is the first formal truth-telling inquiry into injustice experienced by First Peoples in Victoria. From Thursday, April 27 to Friday, May 12, Uruk is holding public hearings to question Victorian Government Ministers, Senior Bureaucrats and Chief Commissioner of Victoria Police about injustice against First Peoples in the child protection and criminal justice systems. You can watch the hearings online or make a submission at yurukjusticecommission.org.au. A 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. These are your news headlines for this morning. University of Melbourne, alongside other staff from universities statewide, uh, participated in the NTEU strike. So last Wednesday, thousands of university staff from Monash, Deakin, Latrobe and Federation Unis went on strike and marched to Victorian Trades Hall together in unity. Not only did workers show solidarity, hundreds of students marched alongside in support. It was the largest university strike in memory and there's more to come, says Xavier Dupay, the National Union of Students Education Officer. This comes after growing anger and discontent over casualization. There's only three in ten jobs in the tertiary sector that are permanent, according to the NTEU. This statewide action was made to fight against increasing work hours and workload, pervasive job insecurity and the failure of university universities to offer pay rises that keep pace with cost of living pressures. The four-hour stoppage was the first in what looks to be many more battles between the NTEU and the University of Melbourne management. More than 500 staff within the University of Melbourne walked off the job, so they were joining students and supporters while chanting, Duncan Mascal, get out, we know what you're all about, cuts, job losses, money for the bosses. Vice-Chancellor Duncan Mascal is the highest paid university boss in Australia, earning $1.5 million a year 
year, or rather exploiting and stealing this money from the wages of staff. If demands aren't met by June 30th, NTEU members will consider further industrial action. Speaking about the cost of living crisis and fighting for rights, the Labor's budget predictions are quite interesting. Um, I'll start off with the cost of living in general. There's going to be about $14.6 billion um, put to combat the cost of living crisis and it's going to be basically used throughout four years. So essentially $3.65 billion is going to be set aside to tackle the cost of living each year. Labor promised in New South Wales to lift 2.5% public sector wages to combat inflation but is now delivering declining living standards to nurses, teachers and many other tens of thousands who work directly for the government in their slashing of 10% of public sector workers. So over 5,000 will become jobless because of this decision. There's also stuff on housing. So 25% of Australians are seriously struggling to afford housing and 45% of Australians are finding it difficult to afford housing. There are a Commonwealth um, like subsidies that are available, but... Um, it's just it's not looking like it's going to be fixing the whole uh, housing crisis. People who earn superannuation balances above three million will be taxed by thirty percent. I believe the measure will raise nine hundred million dollars over the next four years and three point two billion over the next five years. The as for retirement standard for singles is around five hundred and ninety five. But the current reality for most workers is much lower. The average super balance for men once they're 64 years old is typically only 322000 And for women that age, it's even lower at 246000 If Labor had a spine and if they truly are a party that represents workers and labourers, they would tax the rich properly. For example, taxing those with supers $1 million and over. Imagine how much funding that could raise and be put into job seeker hospitals and childcare and education. A bit about welfare. Single parenting payment will continue until the youngest child turns 14. So this is up from the previous cutoff, which was eight years old. Basically, what this translates to is recipient, primarily mothers, won't receive single parenting welfare when their youngest is just about to start high school. Originally, single parents were able to receive welfare until their youngest turned 16, but it was Julia Gillard on the day of her now-famous misogyny speech in 2012 who attacked single-parent welfare so that recipients weren't eligible for payments once their youngest turned 8 years old, slicing the cut-off age in half. Although the new cut-off age will add an extra $176 a fortnight compared to the job seeker payment, it is in no way adequate in equipping ordinary people for the rising cost of living and is in no way up or above its original budget standard. Albanese confirmed the change would cost $1.9 billion over four years and it will kick on in the 20th of September, assuming that the legislation passes Parliament. The $50 a day rate of job seeker will be increased, but here's the catch. Only people who are 55 years old and over are eligible for this. This move will benefit more than 220,000 people, but it excludes more than 680,000 others on job seeker and youth allowance. Those aged 60 or older are actually, with more than nine months on JobSeeker, are already qualified for a higher rate of 745 a fortnight compared to the $693 for a single person with no children under that age. Ministers are repeatedly refusing to lift JobSeeker to 90% of the pension, citing its $24 billion cost, even though Labor government 
has not blinked an eye when signing the AUKUS deal that uh, will basically steal uh, $368 billion worth of taxpayers' wages. Um, but we'll we'll get to that later. Another bit about childcare, nine, there's going to be $9 billion invested in, in funding into childcare subsidies over four years, more than the coalition's last, despite the recommendations from the Women's Economic Equality Task Force and Economic Inclusion Advisory Committee. This budget is not expected to abolish the activity test for childcare subsidies. So the test reduces subsidies for childcare where one parent works less than 15 hours a week, resulting in an estimated 126,000 Australian children from low-income households missing out on early childhood education. I'm going to finish off the budget, um, more stuff on the armed forces. So obviously we all know that there's going to be um, $368 billion spent on the AUKUS deal. What else could it be spent on? Well, it could be going into funding into the public sector so that the 5,000 workers could keep their jobs. It could make education free for the first degrees and first vocational courses. This would only cost $60.1 billion for the first 10 years. The estimate of the Parliamentary Budget Office says that subsidising free first degrees will only cost $4.3 billion a year over the first 10 years. So while we're still spending $368 billion on the AUKUS deal for offensive nuclear submarines, um, and even more to that, $4.1 billion for missiles and manufacturing. So just to put that into um, the picture of what our budget could truly really be spent on, which is ordinary people. Speaking about the cost of living and budgeting, um, speaking about what else, you know, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is up to, other than signing onto a $368 billion worth of offensive nuclear submarines, our PM gushes with excitement upon King Charles III's coronation, saying, it will be a historic moment and I regard it as a great privilege to be present at Westminster Abbey when it occurs. Lots of people will probably have thought or assumed that the British crown would have degenerated into this absurd farce. Um, but the international ruling class, the coronation is is a serious matter, um, far from being this sort of relic. The undemocratic, parasitic nature of the monarchy reflects the basic values of modern capitalism. The coronation itself was expected to cost more than 100 million euros in taxpayers' money. This is all while living standards are being thrashed in Britain, uh, where full-time workers are forced to uh, live off food banks to survive. And this is all while uh, British teachers, nurses and postal workers are on strike fighting for their rights. Free Palestine, it's been 75 years since Al-Nakba. From 1947 to 1949, at least 750,000 Palestinians were expelled from their homes um, during the Al-Nakba. It was Zionist force who basically raised 530 villages and slaughtered at least 15,000 Palestinians. Um, this is how uh, the state of Israel was born. We stand in solidarity for Free Palestine. There will be a protest this Saturday, 1 p.m. at State Library. And and that is all for your new segment. Amazing. Thank you for that. Um, we might jump into our first clip for this morning. Ashikin, did you want to tell us what we'll be listening to to start this morning? Yeah. First up, we have the host of Brainwaves, Flick Manning, who chats with Stephanie Forneza, a psychologist, mother and producer of Psycho Cinematic Podcast, which was born out of her love for film and 
a passion for challenging stigmas around mental illness and disability. She will talk about her own mental health journey, why she became a psychologist and her podcast. She'll also talk about the depictions of mental illness and disability in popular films and TV and points out why we should care. Annie and Steph will be talking about sensitive content around mental illness and disabilities. Some of what's discussed can be distressing. If you need resources or support, go to beyondblue.org or call Lifeline 13 11 14. Please look after yourself. Let's have a listen. Steph, what can society do differently to reduce the stigma around mental health and represent the lived experiences of mental health conditions in a better and more accurate way? That's a great question. Um, I think the most important thing that needs to change is have people with lived experience in more decision-making roles in the mental health field as well as um, in the actual depictions of mental health which is gradually improving as we sort of evolve as a society, but still a long ways to go, I think. One of my future guests that I interviewed recently said, nothing about us without us in charge, which I really liked. It was a little bit of a a spin on the nothing about us without us comment, not just have consultation with someone with a disability or mental health, but also have them in an active um, leadership role because that's sometimes that's the difference in seeing an accurate depiction versus an inaccurate depiction. You can kind of really tell when a representation has been created with people with mental health issues in in the sort of forefront. I also think we're becoming a bit more discerning as a community um, now that mental health is becoming a lot less taboo to talk about thanks to social media. So the conversation's continuing and it's growing. So I think... um, and just needs to continue to grow so that there are more opportunities for people with mental illness to be involved in um, representation and be supported to do so as well. So making sure that film sets, the film industry, and and just generally um, media are inclusive so that people's access to needs are being taken into account and they're actually leading what those are. And it's I think it, another point as well is that the, some of the stigma actually comes from the mental illness sector itself as well. For example, the DSM is widely known that it's a very flawed diagnostic tool. And when it was sort of created, it was really only based on the male population, the straight cis population. So we're starting to shift away from just using that research-based um, modalities such as things like the DSM and incorporating more lived experience-based modalities as well. So um, we're getting a more well-rounded understanding of mental illness and disability and also treatment. And I think that's a really exciting place to go. Also, we need to put more money into the mental health system and fund it properly and make it more accessible to gain a diagnosis and have treatment, uh, which is a huge undertaking. And I really hope that we make some movements towards that. Tick, tick, tick to everything I hear just said. Yeah, look, I think the lived experience angle is just so essential in in all ways. And I actually find it extremely baffling as a person with mental illness and disability myself that these things have sort of taken so long to even be considered to be important. And as Steph, like many folks, as we went into the start of the pandemic, and I, of course, want to stress here that the pandemic is ongoing. I'm not talking about it in the past tense. And isolation became a thing for so many of us and, you know, people with disabilities are still very much in that place as well. I embarked on watching a lot of older films and TV at that time because suddenly, you know, home was the only space that I could be in 
And I really wanted that nostalgia kick to feel good, have things around me that sort of made me feel warm and cuddly. So I sort of was watching all of this stuff that in my memory was really wonderful and really, you know, turning points in my life as a teenager and a child and then was absolutely flawed on rewatching them now as an adult about just how horrid some of the themes and societal messages and how terrible the portrayal of so many different sort of scenarios actually were. When people, you know, tune into your podcast or look at your socials, are people generally surprised when they rewatch older movies and TV at what was being put in their brain, you know, in the 90s and the 80s and so on? And if so, what aspects of that are they actually most surprised by? Yes, constantly. I'm also surprised myself when I'll rewatch something that I loved when I was younger. And, and it might not necessarily be just mental illness, but just the messages of living your life or, um, you know, gender and sexuality and things like that. And, yeah, sometimes that can be hard for people to, I guess I've often been accused of ruining someone's favourite film, sometimes lightheartedly, sometimes not. Uh, particularly Disney. Disney is the biggest thing people get surprised by and also really upset by um, whenever I point it out, especially TikTok. And uh, particularly disabled tropes, Disney is very responsible for reinforcing a lot of um, those, such as Captain Hook, The Seven Dwarves. And there's also lots of psychological themes in some of those really classic, beloved films like Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, a lot of those movies, love seems to be the cure-all, whether it's mental illness, uh, disability, just life. Um, love is the answer to everything, um, which was also perpetuated in a lot of films where mental illness is um, the overarching theme. So I find it always really frustrating, but people can get quite defensive when, when you bring up some of the negative themes in those or not unhelpful things in some of those movies because they're so beloved. And I feel bad sometimes, but it also, I think it's really important to say that I'm not trying to ruin, I'm actually not trying to ruin anything. I can't, it might inadvertently dampen some of your favorite films, but it's really important to be aware of those tropes. There's a reason why we evolve and change as a society, because what maybe served us then doesn't serve us now. We know more now and we can choose to accept or reject those tropes. And I'm not trying to tell anyone to stop watching something. For example, I mentioned The Wizard of Oz before. It's still one of my favourite films and I'll still watch it, <laughs> even though it was awful to the, the dwarfism community and perpetuated so many stereotypes. But the more that we can critique and have conversations about what we see and just watch things with a more critical lens, then we can actually pick up or reject some of the messages that it shares. And on that note about um, mental illness, particularly a lot of mental illness is shown through horror and thriller films, things like Hitchcock films, like Psycho. Um, a lot of people were surprised. Um, we talked about Psycho in just a, a sort of summary episode that the di the mental illness that um, Norman Bates has doesn't actually exist. Like he he um, there isn't actually a mental illness where you take on the persona of your mother. <laughs> it's made up. And so that was surprising to some people. And I think it's, you know, can be really fun to look at the horror um, or use mental illness in some of those sort of horror lenses, but um, it is very much the product of its time sometimes and can perpetu perpetuate very negative stereotypes. 
But yeah, it's really just about looking at the context of the film, what its you know, purpose was. Like often those um, older um, depictions weren't there to share about this mental illness and bring awareness for it. It was just to tell a story. So keeping that in mind, but also rejecting some of the messages that come from it. Absolutely. I think it sort of serves as, in a way, like good empathy training for society to relook at stuff. And sometimes it is very uncomfortable. You know, people have to learn to sit with discomfort. Um, mm-hmm. And again, that's something that we've not been trained to do very well as a society as we're trying to True. ignore all the discomfort, run away from pain, all of those kinds of things. But growth, you know, is sort of has that precursor of discomfort to it. And I think that's a really good place for people to sit to learn how to empathize with other people because then you're going, well, it might not affect me personally at this point in my life, but what if something happens to my body and it changes and then actually I am like that person that's depicted on screen as a villain purely because I have got a facial difference or something along those lines. And, of course, you're not going to want to be treated that way in actual society if something does get changed. So I think it's, you know, it's important that we sit with our discomfort. Definitely, 100%. Now, Steph, what TV shows and movies would you recommend people watch to get a, maybe a clearer idea on the lived experience of mental health or the you know actual experience of being a therapist, for example? Ah, uh, great question. Um, there's so much out there that's not very accurate, but there's also some really beautiful um, representation that's excellent. I guess anything that has the actual community involved in the creation of it, not just consulted with, but what created or acted in it or um, had some uh, production credits and things like that. One thing we just reviewed recently was Please Like Me, which is the TV series by Josh Thomas. And it just portrays mental illness in so many different aspects. And you can really tell that it was done really carefully and with love and also not really tried not to um, perpetuate some of the common tropes um, that occur. And also showed it very, so I guess in context, um, so Josh Thomas created this show as a bit of a, a tribute to his mother's mental health journey, um, who has bipolar. Um, but there's also grief in it. There's anxiety in it. There's lots of um, controversial subjects. There's abortion. And it's a really well fleshed out, very well um, handled depiction of, of those things, as well as being in a mental mental health ward in a hospital um, that's something we don't see very well. Um, uh, probably the most common memory of that would be One Floor Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which is based in the 60s. And some of those things were accurate and some of them were prob- um, a little bit embellished for the story. But it was, please like me, I think it's just it just ticks all the boxes of a good portrayal with lived experience within it and showing realistic messages, not not necessarily positive or negative, just um the I guess the complexity of mental illness and it how it 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 goes you know it has highs and lows and then it's not a beginning middle and end kind of story so that tv show is amazing and then in terms of film portrayal um I think the best one I've seen it's not very popular it uh it was a a a blockbuster as they tend not to be but there's a a movie called touch with fire which is a depiction of uh, bipolar disorder created, uh, directed, written by someone with bipolar. And 
uh, Katie Holmes and Luke Kirby are in it who don't have bipolar, but they really, even though they aren't the people with lived experience with bipolar in the role, I think their star power probably needed it to be there for the film to, you know, have traction. So it, it's really important to note that they don't, it doesn't have to tick 100% of the boxes of lived experience in order for it to be a responsible, respectful, good representation of mental illness, um, but it was led by that lived experience, and I think that's really important. And people from the bipolar community really see themselves represented in that. There's no um, love fixes everything tropes, or it shows sort of the really not-so-positive side as well as some of the strengths that people with bipolar can have, but it also doesn't um, glamorise it as well. So... Definitely watch that one if you can. It was on SBS On Demand, but I don't think it's there anymore. Please like me. One of my faves, absolute faves, and I agree with you. It did such a good job of depicting the complexity of it and thought that was so refreshing when I watched that because I thought people could actually see their actual lives in your show and that's a rare treat. So I know it's on Netflix, just as an FYI. Anyone that's yeah. on Netflix, it's, it's very accessible. Watch it if you have it. Exactly. Now... You're a parent, and so I'm just sort of wondering, what would your vision for the world be in terms of what you want your child to grow up with in regards to mental health? And also, as a secondary aspect to that question, how are you planning on it, or have you already started having conversations with them about mental health? It's a great question. I feel like no parent wants their kid to grow up with a mental illness, but I'm trying to be realistic in that my son has rampant family history of mental health issues. And he also has to grow up in a pandemic world in with all of its flaws. So I think what's what I'm hoping for in a world where my son can grow up as healthy as possible is that it's a it's a more open world where you can talk openly and freely about mental illness. I'd really love that the mental health stigma continues this sort of decline and there continue to be more representations of mental illness and disability um, and for the same reason that it's it's unlikely that that my son will escape disability or mental illness. It's very unlikely. So we can't bubble wrap our kids but we can prepare them for that world and I'd love it to be a better funded world so when he, he needs help he can access that easily uh, on the same basis as everybody else and I feel like the I guess the, the sort of my generation are coming to that acceptance of our shared traumas where the generation before us weren't really allowed to speak too much about mental illness, their, even their emotions in general, and expected to sort of fit into those societal roles and carry on and get their head down. So they weren't really given the tools to become emotionally healthy and resilient. So I feel like we're in a good position as parents of this generation to be able to give those tools to our kids that we had to learn for ourselves. <laughs> So I'm really hoping that my son's generation and his kids are really emotionally resilient and well-rounded. They're just going to be excellent. But we'll see what happens. (laughs) That was Flick Manning, the host of Brainwaves, chatting with Stephanie Forneza from Psycho Cinematic Podcast about her lived experience of anxiety and depression and why we should care about ethical, authentic portrayals of mental illness and disabilities in movie and TV head to www.psychocinematicpodcast.com to tune in. Yara is a Nam Melbourne-based singer-songwriter who migrated from Palestine at age 12. 
Last week, she released her first EP, and this next track is the title track of that EP, Lonely Love Affair. That was Lonely Love Affair by Yara, the title track of her recently released EP. Join the National Day of Action on May 13th to mark 75 years since the Nakba, also known as the Catastrophe, when 80% of the Palestinian people were ethnically cleansed from their homeland and over 530 Palestinian villages destroyed to create the State of Israel. 
Today, Palestinians on a daily basis are still resisting the loss of their homeland and human rights, insisting on their right of return and sharing their truth. Join them in their fight for justice and a free Palestine at 1pm, Saturday, May 13th at the State Library. That's 1pm, Saturday, 13th of May. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Uh, we will be playing, sorry, an excerpt from Solidarity Breakfast uh, with Annie McLaughlin. This one will be with Tanya Jajong about Driftwood, the musical. The story follows the lives of renowned Austrian-Australian sculptor Karl Dulwig and his artist-inventor partner Slava Horowitz Dulwig. Set in pre-war Vienna, Slava's ingenious invention of the foldable umbrella sparks an incredible chain of events miraculously escaping the Holocaust and rebuilding (laughs) their careers as artists in Melbourne. This story was adapted for the stage and is based on the original memoir by Eva de Jong-Duldig. Let's tune in. Is this a a new production for Australia? Yes. uh, Can you tell us about how uh, it, uh, it came about, this production, at this time? Yes. Um, So we started... So mum, my mother Eva de Jong Dordig launched her memoir in 2017 and as a result of that uh, I read the book and I was completely blown away by a family's story. I mean I knew some of the story but I had no idea of the extent of the sacrifices, the losses, um, the way that art had helped my grandparents to survive and re start their lives in Australia in spite of the terrible trauma that they went through. And I read the book and I just thought, wow, wouldn't this be amazing to to be on stage or on film? And then because I'm an opera singer and a musician, I thought, well, I love musical theatre. And so I immediately contacted my friend Anthony Barnhill, who's the most exceptionally talented composer and musician and pianist and he started composing some songs for the show and of course now he's written the majority of the lyrics as well and then we um, had COVID and then that sort of delayed the production. We did a first run of the show last year but it was entirely different to what it is now and we commissioned Jane Bodie originally to write an original play, which was called Driftwood, and then Gary Abrahams, our director, has adapted Jane's play further and directed this this new version of Driftwood the musical. Yeah, it's quite amazing. The uh, for a person, uh, the the level of musical um, mastery in this particular production is quite uh, gobsmacking. The not just the uh, the singers who who are on stage for all the time and do an enormous amount of singing. I mean, you guys must go into training. I, I was so impressed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, we're training all the time. You know, the the more that you perform and and you know tread the boards, uh, the more that you can keep your skills. You know, um, maintain and improve your skills all the time because you know we're working with an extraordinary group. Extraordinary cast, including Anton Berezin as Carl, Bridget Costello is playing the role of Eva, 
Michaela Berger as Rella and uh, Nelson Gardner playing various roles. And of course, I'm playing the role of my inspirational grandmother who invented the foldable umbrella. And we're working with an extraordinary creative team. So we're constantly refining and developing our skills and working out what is the best way to tell this story. And as our director says, it's like creating a sculpture you know you start with a block of wood and then you chisel away at it and you keep on working on the work to make it better and better yeah well that's exactly what you've done uh, the um stage setting and uh the way it moves through time without requiring uh uh cha- changes to the set except for the rather uh clever very clever device of the strip of uh paper across the ceiling that uh, allowed mm-hmm. you to do projections that was a very clever idea oh well thank you yeah i mean we have an exceptional you know creative team as i said and wonderful set designer jacob batista and justin garden who's done these incredible projections the wonderful lighting designer harry hogan and our costume designer kim bishop uh just it's a it's a dream team you know to work with these people and create a work of this substance and this originality, an Australian story, a true Australian story of real depth. And this is what we need a lot more of in Australia. We need a lot more shows that are telling real stories and, you know, entertainment for entertainment's sake is wonderful. You know, who can take anything away from wonderful shows that, you know, are from overseas and that are glorious and have huge, big budgets like Phantom of the Opera, for example. But there's a there's a real place for us to make these sorts of works and then take them to the world and show people, you know, the depth of community and resilience and survival that underpins most people who live in Australia who are migrants, you know, this is a true migrant story. What was it like to, I mean, this is actually a story about uh, three generations of women in your family, uh, your your grandmother, your mother and then you, um, it, and it's interwoven together, isn't it? it it's quite a, an extraordinary, it must be quite an emotional experience for you. Yeah, I mean... It really is. I mean, I'm wearing my grandmother's earrings in the show. And, I mean, she was an inspirational person. I mean, the, the, not only was she an incredible inventor of the umbrella, the foldable umbrella in Vienna in 1929, but she also invented and designed furniture and other things. And she was a wonderful sculptor and artist as well as my grandfather was. And she lost a lot of her creative impulse after going through so much trauma and so much uncertainty. I mean, the show is called Driftwood because our family, my grandparents felt like they were like a piece of driftwood being tossed into the ocean to then land on a shore only to be swept out again, never really knowing where home was going to be for a number of years. And that was very destabilizing for her and she couldn't create work for, for many years where my grandfather was really able to his work was like his escape and it was how he was able to always see salvation to get through everything so it took my grandmother a long time to then come back to her work but luckily she did 
and she was able to create some more incredible works in her lifetime. But of course, the level of losses that my family experienced on all sides of our family, my of course, my grandparents lost the majority of their families, you know, parents, brothers, sisters, you know, it's so tragic. Um, you know, even on my dad's side too, though we're not covering that story. That's a whole other musical, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because I'm not a great fan of musicals in a sense. I, I find them a bit tiresome because they seem to, uh, you know, there's a single idea and then they repeat the single idea over and over. But, of course, that's a rather a, sh a shallow way of looking at it. And I was um, really quite uh, taken by the... Uh, depth of the musicality, the music itself, because it's very evocative. And I was also really um, taken by the different voices and the mastery within those voices. And I was also really taken by the cleverness of the stage staging, the uh, the director's uh, approach to movement oh, yes. across stage. Very clever. Yeah, well, it's an amazing journey because the show covers three generations and three continents and to create that with a single set is well not really because he, he's able to use his extraordinary creative imagination to create multiple different scenarios quite brilliantly and uh, yeah Gary Abrahams is an absolute genius and uh, we're very lucky to be working with him. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. And also the uh, place. Um, and like you said, you know, it's all very well to have the ma a major uh, theatre like the Princess showing the Phantom of the Opera, but it's a fa fabulous uh, chapel on chapel. is such an intimate uh, place to be working. Oh, it certainly is. It's, it's lovely. And that's, you know, we could have put this show in a larger theatre, but we really feel like some of the people in the audience last night and certainly last season as well, describe it as stepping on a train with us and being on that journey and they just cannot get off until they find out what happens. And I think people feel that sense of immediacy with their story and they feel part of the family. And it's important to say that this is not just my family's story. I mean, this is a story of all our collective stories, of our collective sacrifice and suffering as human beings, it's also a story, a very important story of how dangerous it is when we discriminate against any group of people. And that has always led to atrocities throughout human history. And it's so important that we do never discriminate, that we speak out, that we never remain silent, silent sorry, in the face of any type of discrimination. Well, it plays till uh, March 20 here and then it moves on to Sydney, doesn't it? Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah, very exciting. Yeah, it's very exciting. So uh, we're very, you know, we're very um, grateful to be working with this team. We're very grateful um, for the incredible response of the audiences. We've had two out of two standing ovations so far and last year, of course, we completely sold out our season in Melbourne, and now we're taking the show to Sydney as, as well from the 24th of May until the 18th of June, and then we're taking Gary and Anthony and working with American performers in New York to to set this up um, in New York and see 
what sort of interest we can get from the theatre owners and investors in New York. Wow, that's really exciting. Um, I also <laughs> I also have to t- doff my hat to the incredible publicist you've got or publicity team uh, because I'll, I'll direct people to the fact that they can go to the website and then they can have a dinner date and then a theatre experience. It's all beautifully uh, worked out. <laughs> it is. It's so nice. Well, no, that's my, my work. <laughs> oh, well, you uh, are a master. <laughs> no, no, just not just me, but my work with my, my wonderful team too. And the Chapel Street precinct. It's so nice to have, you know, four restaurants, really good restaurants who are helping promote this and they're providing beautiful dinner packages and, you know, particularly some beautiful ones like Borscht, Vodka and Cheese, the Polish restaurant, which provided dumplings last night at our opening. And it's just beautiful having that support from the community. Yeah. Thank you very much for talking to me. No, that's a pleasure. And please, everyone, go to driftwoodthemusical.com.au and book your tickets before they sell out. That was Annie McLaughlin from Solidarity Breakfast chatting with Tanya DeJong, who plays her grandmother in Driftwood the Musical, a local true account of remarkable people surviving through art upon arrival in Australia from war-torn Europe. The show is running until the 20th of May at Chapel on Chapel. Head to driftwoodthemusical.com.au to grab your tickets today. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. We'll be playing a snippet from last Saturday's Solidarity Breakfast Show where 3CR host Annie McLaughlin chats with Laura from Save the Preston Market campaign. Good food and good people, the Preston Market is home to Chinese, East African, Vietnamese, Indian, Greek and Italian cuisine. However, the market is currently owned by billionaire Sam Tarskia, who wants to knock down 80% of the market to sell off for private development. Laura urges listeners to join in on the fight with a message to say no to demolition of the market and to fight for public acquisition. Preston Market is known as a cultural melting pot where people from all around the northern suburbs share their passion for food across the world. Let's have a listen. Shortly, the whole group um, volunteers on a Saturday um, to either collect signatures or do whatever is required. And we have a town hall meeting, so we're we want to let as many people know. Um, and so we'll be out around the, the Preston Market handing out leaflets. Oh, good. Well, keep, take an umbrella, put on some nice woolly That's clothes right. and a, um, and uh, your uh, waterproofs and perhaps you'll, you'll survive the day. 
I think we will. Uh, nothing's going to stop us anyway, that's for sure. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so uh, apparently uh, the Victorian Planning Authority recommendations also say that there should be um, special care of Preston Market. Yes, they've, the, the recommendation came through. Um, it's all positive for the campaign. What is still unknown is how much of the market um, will be protected, what the heritage overlay means. So we're excited. It's a good step forward, but we still need further clarity. Yeah, yeah. You, you don't yeah. want to trust them. Uh, well, yes, definitely not going to trust anything unless it's in writing, that's for sure. Yeah. So tell us what your group is hoping for. Yeah, okay. No worries. So I'll just some background as well, because I think it's important. I saw a post calling for volunteers um, on Facebook to save the market. I had no idea that the market was even privately owned. I've lived in Preston all my life. Um, I quickly joined up because, for me, Preston Market is our lifeline. It's the centre of what we do, um, you know, especially because I grew up in Preston. Um, I joined the campaign. I started doing stalls. Our message is clear. We say no to demolition of the market. We say save the footprint. And further to that, we want public acquisition. That's the only way going forward the market will be protected. Mm. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's really odd, isn't it, that uh, something that is so integral to the uh, vibrancy and uh, sustainability of uh, a, a community like Preston should be in private hands. Yes, uh, our thoughts exactly. It's as important as a road. And I want to stress as well that it's, not just Preston. I mean, I've done the stalls every Saturday for, you know, I think it's two years now um, with, with absolute pleasure. And we talk to people that are from Milk Park or from, you know, Bandura or from Doncaster, Baldwin. I mean, it's not just a Darabin icon. I, I think everyone enjoys the market. Just like, you know, one of the things to do if you're a tourist is to go to the Victoria market. There's no reason why the Preston market wouldn't be a landing spot either you know it's just critical yeah yeah because it's the open airness it's the uh, interaction it's uh community isn't it i mean it's so different from a supermarket Uh, it's completely different it was a savior during covid for a lot of families you know it was an opportunity to see someone undercover (laughs) um at a market um you know and it was and it still is a melting pot of so many cultures. Preston, you know, had Italian influence, has Greek influence. It now has, you know, Lebanese, Chinese, Vietnamese. It's just a melting pot. So to have every single culture that, you know, I know of in Victoria represented at that market, it's it's just beyond a, a fresh produce place. It's a community gathering spot. It's everything. It really is why... I devote so many hours to this campaign. So tell us about the public meeting. Yeah, we'll do. So the public meeting is on Friday the 12th of May at 6.30. Just head down to the Preston Shire Hall, which is next door to the town hall. Um, we basically invited the Premier, the Planning Minister, the Mayor of Darabin, other local uh, politicians and the developers to come in and really listen to the community about what we want for the Preston market. So it'll be an interesting meeting. Um, We'll have a couple of presenters as well, just to give people an update of where we're at with the SAC report, etc. 
but it'll be about hearing the community voice. Yeah, great. And so tell me, do you have any understanding of any timelines that the developer is uh, and the government are interested in? Because obviously the government is pretty hand in glove with this developer. Look, yes, yes, they are. But there's no timeline, there's no time frame. You know, the SAC report recommendation was due in December and we only got it a short time ago. So as far as the timeline is concerned, there isn't one. Uh, we're waiting for the Minister of Planning to make a decision, and it's yeah, 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 it's yeah. Something yeah. else will stress. <laughs> we need to know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Because in actual fact, this is a real hot potato. This is oh. this is a, a line in the sand, isn't it? Yeah. Look, it it really is the pivotal point of our campaign, and I guess what will happen for the future of the uh, market. So. Yeah, I think this is a good chance for everyone to be heard. So uh, we've had confirmation that the mayor and the uh, representative of um, the premier will attend. We're still waiting for Salter to, um, you know, send in whether or not they will attend. But I think it'll be a good meeting to let everyone understand and hear where we're at. So that's... Uh, Friday, May the 12th, 6.30, Preston Town Hall. Preston Shire Hall, 286 Gower Street, Preston. All right. Um, Good luck and uh, good luck with your um, uh, leafleting. Thanks very much for coming onto the show. Yeah, thank you so much for the time. You know, we won't stop. We want the market saved. That was Annie McLaughlin from Solidarity Breakfast speaking with Laura from Save the Preston Market campaign. It's really inspiring to hear that volunteers are continuing their stalls and handing out leaflets even in the rain to build a real fight. I think it's worth noting that Queen Victoria Market faced a similar redevelopment scheme that almost saw the whole market demolished in the 1970s. But because of trade union militants from the Builders Labourers Federation and strong left-wing mobilisation on the streets, the market was saved and is now a public space for locals and tourists alike to enjoy fresh produce and a cheeky coffee. If you want to get involved, head to Preston Shire Hall this Friday at 6.30pm for the Save the Preston Market campaign public meeting. Check out www.savethepressonmarket.com or Save the Preston Market on Facebook. Sudan Archives is a violinist and vocalist who writes, plays and produces her own music. Drawing inspiration from Sudanese fiddlers, she is self-taught on the violin and her unique songs also fold in elements of R&B and experimental electronic music. It was recently announced that she'll be playing a show in Melbourne in July and to celebrate, here's the 2019 track, Come My Way. Can't jump high, but I hear all the notes. I can't be you, no. I can't be you, but I can be true, no.
And that was Come Away by Sudan Archives. Next up, we have on the line uh, Will Strzok. Will Strzok is the Assistant Secretary of the Victorian Trades Hall Council, as well as, of course, a TikTok star. Um, and we've spoken to Will on the show before. I'm very happy to have them back. Um, the Victorian Trades Hall is campaigning this year to end the misuse of non-disclosure agreements in cases of workplace sexual harassment in Victoria. So Will is on the show this morning to talk us through this. Uh, welcome to Tuesday Breakfast, Will. Thank you very much. So just for listeners who may not be aware, could you briefly outline what a non-disclosure agreement is? Okay, um, a non-disclosure agreement, or a, we more commonly call them a confidentiality clause, is something that's added into an agreement um, when you negotiate through to the end of, for instance, a sexual harassment matter. So we know that sexual harassment is uh, very common in workplaces. We know that um, in a very small number of cases, people feel confident enough to raise that and they might then pursue a claim for sexual harassment. And then as part of the, I suppose, the deal, when you negotiate an end to that claim, a settlement of that claim, uh, you sign a, 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 de- a deed between you saying, you know, what that arrangement for settlement is. And part of that, as a kind of standard clause, they add in this thing, which is effectively a secrecy clause, which says that, the victim can never, ever talk about what happened to them. Um, And that's put in place to protect the reputation of the company where it's happened. But what we know is that because of those clauses, it means that um, victims can't ever talk about it. In some cases, not even with their family and friends. And in some cases, they can't even talk about the fact that they've signed, that there's been a settlement and that they've signed one of those um, deeds and that's really harmful, um, both for the organisation, because it means that where there's cultures of secrecy, bad behaviour flourishes, but it's also really bad for the people who've experienced sexual harassment because it's incredibly re-traumatising over time, and that's what the evidence now tells us. It's incredibly re-traumatising for them that they can't ever talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, straight off the bat, it sounds like a tool that kind of puts more power in the organization's hands and allows for, you know, workers or victim survivors who have been through this in the workplace to be manipulated and to be silenced? Oh, completely. Um, it's very much about, as I say, it's, it, it's one of the only crimes that happens or one of the only really bad things that happens where effectively um, it, it, the victim survivor can't ever talk about it. So they're hurt twice. The thing has happened to them. And then they can't talk about this thing that's happened to them. Yeah, absolutely. So what um, led tra- Trades Hall to starting this campaign against the misuse of NDAs this year? Well, um, we've had a view about them for a while, but particularly last year the Victorian government had uh, an inquiry um, into uh, sexual harassment in workplaces. And as part of, the, of us, I think, trade union movement, developing kind of our thoughts about what we thought could be done about sexual harassment... One of this came up, right? So we, as a movement, said, I think, and we've, you know, we've been party to the process of negotiating these settlements, and as a result, we've been party to when members of unions have signed up to these things, and 
you know, because that's the way it was always done and, you know, members have said in some cases, I want this, I want, I want, to, I want to feel like I'm protected as well. But now time tells us and members have told us and our experience is that in the long run these things are harmful. So what we now say is the only basis on which you should be able to include a confidentiality clause or a, or a secrecy clause in a settlement of a sexual harassment matter is if the victim survivor asks for it, so it has to be initiated by them, and they should have the ability at a later date to change their mind. Like in, in the moment, they might say, I want this behind me, I don't want anyone to talk about it, I just want to move on, I want this. But if in a few years' time they say, actually now I want to be able to talk about this, they should be able to. Absolutely. Do you, in your experience, um, you know, speaking with people that have been through this in the workplace, does it disproportionately affect workers who are already marginalised? You know, like women, gender diverse people, people of colour, are they more likely to be harmed by this? Oh, absolutely. They're, A, they're more likely to experience um, sexual harassment and gender-based violence in the workplace. So uh, women, cis and trans, um, uh, women of colour, First Nations women, women with disabilities, uh, women who are already marginalised and excluded are absolutely more likely to be victim survivors of um, these kinds of things that happen in workplaces. And then they also, in many cases, um, the legal system is confusing, it's very challenging, and that's one of the other things we say is that um, the current systems for resolving sexual harassment and gender-based violence matters are far too complicated, um, and particularly if you're already marginalised and excluded, those systems become completely out of reach, which is one of the reasons why we know that sexual harassment and gender-based violence is grossly underreported. We know that if you do surveys, for instance, women will say, you know, two-thirds of working women say they've experienced some form of gender-based violence, but actually the number of matters that go all the way through to a tribunal or some kind of hearing is tiny compared to that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, society in general is set up to ensure that, you know, these people stay marginalised. So I'm sure that, you know, in the capitalist organisation, that can only be worse, um, especially if their main focus is, you know, protecting their own reputation. Um, You know, what have... I'm sure you've spoken to victim survivors who've been through this, um, and I'm sure they feel so disempowered through these experiences being devalued by their organisations. Um, you know, what, what, in what ways have they described their experiences? Uh, they say, um, that generally, it's regret. They, you know, they say, if I had known when I signed up to this what the experience was going to be like all this time later, that I would feel these things... Um, I wouldn't have signed up. Mm. Uh, so it's regret and, as I say, it's it's a kind of re-traumatising thing. And some of them, the, the non-disclosure agreements, the secrecy clauses, are so extreme that they can't even talk about um, the fact that they've signed these things. So we've got a, a tip line that we've set up where people can talk about their experience of sexual harassment but also their experience with these um, secrecy clauses and, you know, people say to us, I really want to talk about this thing, but I'm really frightened that I can't even, I, I, I can't even say that I've signed this thing, so I can't talk about it. And the problem with these things is 
where a crime is invisible, where we don't know there are victims, you actually don't really know that a crime is happening. And so we don't really know what the prevalence of sexual harassment is Mm. because so many people who've actually pursued these matters end up signing these things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You touched on it a little bit earlier. Um, It sounds like one of the main things this campaign is looking for is... uh, to empower the victim survivors. So mm-hmm. you, you were talking about how they should be allowed to change their mind um, yes. and they shouldn't be bound by this level of secrecy. Um, what other protections is this campaign hoping to get for workers? Well, I mean, more broadly, there was a whole series of things that, um, as I say, when we were putting together our response to the Ministerial Task Force on Sexual Harassment, we kind of sat down and thought about a whole lot of things that we think um, would be really helpful Um some of them are about alternative uh, res- dispute resolution processes that are more straightforward and that are more focused on... You know, I've supported union members who've experienced sexual harassment and in every single case, the the decision about whether to pursue the matter further isn't about getting money. It's not about compensation. It's a, every single time the member has said to me, I just don't want this to happen to somebody else. Mm. And so, you know, a lot of our dispute resolution processes are set up so that it's adversarial and so that, you know, it's a you win or you lose type thing. Whereas in many cases, what the victim survivor wants is an acknowledgement from the organisation that something bad has happened to them and a way forward so that both they can continue to work in the organisation and so that it never happens again. And there must be ways for us to achieve that, right? We're good, smart people and we can we can think through how that might happen. We want to have things like, um, is one of the things that we as a movement say, is that we need directorial responsibility. What often happens with sexual harassment matters is the board of directors of a company never hears about it until they're at the stage where they've negotiated some kind of settlement. So they don't even know about it. And what we say is, at the moment, organisations have a positive duty to prevent, in Victoria to prevent sexual harassment and under occupational health and safety law, they already have a duty to keep workers safe and sexual harassment is a, it's an occupational health and safety risk. It causes harm to victim survivors. So we say the obligations already exist. So... If directors aren't meeting their obligations, if they aren't doing what they should to ensure that the company is meeting those obligations, then it shouldn't be that they are protected by the company veil. It should be that those directors have liability for that. In the same way that now in Victoria, for industrial manslaughter and for wage theft, there are ways of holding directors who fail to meet their obligations personally accountable as opposed to just saying, oh, that's a cost of doing business, we'll get the company to pay because we think that's one thing that, for instance, might mean that it rises up the list of priorities for organisations and directors in particular to think about when they're thinking about what the organisational culture is. So there are a whole range of things that we think need to happen, um, and some of them are going to take us, you know, a lot of campaigning to get to, and some of them we think they should be very small fixes that we can get done pretty quickly. Absolutely. I think that's a really great point that you just mentioned. Um, you know, it shouldn't just be the cost of doing business. It's actually, mm. it's somebody's life and there mm. should be recourse available. Um, Absolutely. So how can our listeners uh, help support the campaign? What can they do from here? 
Well, if you go to the um, Victorian, uh, the We Are Union website, um, there'll be a section there about this particular campaign. We've got some things coming up. We're launching the campaign um, uh, this Wednesday evening um, at 6.30 online. So you can sign up to attend the launch of the campaign. And then um, we're also going to organise, we've got uh, a, a Parliament Day. So that's a day where we get a whole lot of people together who want to talk about this and we go and visit Parliament and visit as many members of Parliament as we can. Um, with the delegations, um, we aim to get between 60 and 100 folks together to go and visit every MP that will meet with us to talk about why we think this is important. So we've got a couple of actions coming up. We've got the launch on Wednesday and then we've got the um, Parliament Day coming up in June. And then in the meantime, what we'll be doing from then on is probably an action every month, different actions, either in community or, you know, all together to kind of keep raising awareness of the issue. Amazing. We will absolutely link uh, to both the Zoom session and to the online petition that listeners can sign in our show notes later today as well. Um, that's all we have time for this morning, Will. Thank you so much for joining us to talk this through. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So that was uh, Will Strzok, the Assistant Secretary at Victorian Trades Hall Council, talking to us about the campaign to end the misuse of non-disclosure agreements. You can join the online campaign tomorrow, the 10th of May, from 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. via Zoom. We will link to this in our show notes later today, so make sure you have a look at 3cr.org.au slash Tuesday-breakfast. Boobap Jazz The Milky Way looks good in the night sky So stars open a short for my dark eyes Hey, I'm Lady Lash You're listening to 3CR Community Radio The voice of the set 3CR is so awesome Giving the platform for people's voices to be heard And people's gifts to be heard And always remember that you are amazing I'm dreaming of the seven moons Enjoy the splendour of Ripponlea Estates Gardens at the Botanica Festival featuring an open-air market, plant and garden book sale as well as freshly baked scones with jam and cream. Join a garden tour, visit the mansion or enjoy the various displays. Botanica is made possible by the city of Glen Ira. The Botanica Festival on Mother's Day, Sunday, May the 14th, between 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. For more information, go to ripponlee.com.au. Ripponlee Estate is owned and managed by the National Trust of Victoria, a 3CR supporter. Things need topping up every now and then. Monty, Auntie. Thanks, Bob. Including your COVID protection. If you're an adult and it's been six months since you caught COVID or had a COVID jab, you can now top up with a free COVID-19 booster. It helps keep you and your mob protected from serious illness from COVID-19. So talk to your doctor or health worker about a free COVID-19 booster or visit health.gov.au forward slash top up to find out more. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. 
Last week, the Singapore state executed Tangaraju Sapaya after receiving the death penalty upon conviction of abetting an attempt to traffic cannabis, despite pleas for clemency from his family and protests from activists that the prosecutor's evidence was weak. Critics say Singapore's death penalty has mostly snared low-level mules and done little to stop drug traffickers and organised syndicates. At a United Nations human rights briefing on Tuesday, spokesperson Raviva Shem Dasani called on the Singapore government to adopt a formal moratorium on executions for drug-related offences. Imposing the death penalty for drug offences is incompatible with international norms and standards, Ms Shem Dasani said. She added, increasing evidence showed the death penalty was ineffective as a deterrent. There will be a vigil held in Nam, Melbourne tomorrow at 6pm to honour the memories of Tangaraju and many others who have lost their lives under Singapore's death penalty. Britt from Harm Reduction Victoria joins us on the show this morning to tell us more about this, as well as the need to move away from the criminalisation policies currently in place in places like Singapore and even so-called Australia. Welcome to the show, Britt. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, Britt, can you tell us more about Tangaraju Sapaya and more broadly the inhumane criminal justice system in Singapore? Um, yeah, look, um, Tangaraju's like, um, I mean, he's just the latest person out of hundreds of people who've been executed for non-violent drug offences in Singapore. Um yeah, last year there was eleven eleven people alone just for um just for drugs offences. Mm. Um and you know, I guess what blows my mind is that like while, you know, here in Australia, which is like next door, right, where like our our drugs laws are like loosening, like Queensland just passed legislation decriminalising the personal possession of like a number of substances. Mm. Um ACTs like far ahead of them, um, while this is still happening so close to us, um, it's crazy. Mm. So like one one kilo of cannabis is what Tengaraju had, um, and there was really scant evidence as well. Like there, it was circumstantial evidence, um, but under the mandatory death penalty, the judge just decided, "Yep, you're going." Mm. He got dubbed, he got dubbed in by um, a friend. I guess it was probably a case of you know someone had to choose. <laughs> yeah, right. I think that's a, it's interesting you say that there it, it is a a world trend at the moment. I suppose to your right move to towards loosening a lot of these laws, as you said, mm. we can see here in Australia. So it is even more, I guess, stark and pertinent that. Singapore are choosing to double down on uh, such a yeah. strong, such a strong stance on. Yeah, just like a week after Malaysia um, abolished the mandatory death penalty as well, mm. I think is like super interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. It'll be interesting to see if that, I guess, adds extra pressure or uh, gives momentum to you know other other places in the region to place extra pressure on Singapore mm-hmm. in hope that you know soon that this does change yeah i mean thailand's going through a lot of changes as well right and mm. that's traditionally been like a really really conservative like tough on drugs definitely over there too yeah, yeah. i was i was in thailand in february actually and mm-hmm. i knew that the laws had changed and it was legal but there was still something quite um 
jarring. Like it's a good change, but it was it was it was different. Um, uh, so what can you tell us about so-called drug rehabilitation centres and how they actually function? Um, in Singapore, they're just like another prison. They're, they're, they are actually part of the prison. Right. So they're like in the same building as the prison. And, um, yeah, people are treated like in the same appalling way mm-hmm. as they are um, in the prison. So it's like... And basically... When, so if you're like a if you're found to be a drug user in Singapore, you don't um, like go before like well, you don't go through any sort of judicial process um, before like basically getting kidnapped is how people described it and putting getting put in these um, drug rehab centres DRCs. Um, you're just like put in there, and yeah, it's wow. like a prison. So you're like. It's pretty common that you're just, like, put in a cell by yourself for about five days. So if you've got a dependency to mm-hmm. any substance, you're just, like, left to dry out, go through withdrawal by yourself with no assistance, no, like, medication to mm. help, no running water, no comfort. Um, yeah. And then you don't know how long you're going to be in there for either, apparently. Yeah, wow. So definitely just yeah. another punishment tool rather than rehab. Oh, absolutely. Like that they call it a rehab. People say that's just like a joke. There's no offer of any sort of like, um, not even counselling services. Yeah, well. Yeah. Um, Why is it so crucial to move away from the criminalisation of drug use? And what would it look like to take a human rights public health approach? Um, I mean, well, like criminalisation, if the point is to to lessen um, harms associated with drug use. Mm. I think we know, we can see by now the evidence is there over 150 years of, like, contemporary drugs legislation. It doesn't work. Like, harms associated with drug use um, are just more and more pertinent in societies where where it is criminalised and in, um, in countries nation states where we're seeing like um, more of a loosening of that tough on drugs stance and mm. um, like more move towards decrim bit by bit. It's not perfect anywhere by any means, but um, but you see, well, we're seeing like a lot less harms, like bloodborne virus rates are like you know dropping dramatically in those countries, um, and a lot like. Younger people are using less and less drugs too, which I think is interesting. Say in Portugal, where they've been doing it for like 20 Mm. years now, we can see the trends over that time. Um, Like less and less young people are taking up drugs. Less and less people are injecting drugs. Um, There are less overdoses. There is less like um, drug-associated crime. Um, Yeah, like I said, it's certainly not perfect um, by any means, but Mm. it's a hell of a lot better. Yeah, totally. And you're right. Portugal's a great or a good example of, yeah, decriminalisation and what it can do in that space. Mm. Um, What do you think it would look like in Australia? Like, what are some steps that you hope we could take soon? You mentioned that we are sort of, we're slowly seeing the loosening in a lot of areas, but I guess what are you hoping the next steps could be here? Um... 
the next step here? I mean, like, I hope the other states and territories, I guess, follow suit with ACT and Queensland mm. um, doing, like, decrim for very small amounts of um, substances. I would... I, I would like to see, you know, more consultation with um, communities of people who actually use drugs because when we see these small amounts that are, like, decriminalised, you know, like 1.5 grams of heroin or meth or something like this, that, that, that's not actually a lot of, mm. of a substance if you have a dependency, um, if you have a high tolerance. Um, so, yeah, I guess I would like to see a lot more consultation with people whose lives that actually affects. Yep. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Know. Ask the people that will be affected and maybe you'll see better results. Yeah, <laughs> and I'd like to see, you know, what one thing that they did well in Portugal was I think we can learn from is they diverted, like, a lot of the funding towards the policing of drug use mm. and diverted that towards, like, I guess, like, treatment services and things that would help people who were seeking treatment. Yep. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, there'll be a vigil for Tangaraju and others who have lost their lives under the death penalty in Singapore. Can you tell us a bit about this event and how listeners can show their support? Yeah. Um, so, HR Vic, uh, um, we were approached by some... Um, uh, like DIY you know, grassroots um, social justice activists who are from um, Singapore, um, and we were asked to support them in putting on the vigil. So, um, so that's what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to have a bunch of speakers, like including um, including some of those people who approached us. Um, uh, we just have to be like pretty on the down low because of security reasons with names and stuff. That's why I'm not saying that. <laughs> totally. um, sorry if that's weird. Um, but yeah, also like other people who've spent um, time incarcerated in Singapore and can speak to that experience. Um, we're going to have the vice president of the capital. Uh, Capital Punishment Justice Project speaking, which is um, quite exciting. Um, well, I'm really interested, I should say, to see what um, uh, Sarah Cowell is her name, to see what she said. She was very close to the um, uh, Tangaraju case um, in those last few weeks. Um, yeah, great. Um, yeah. That's all we have time for this morning, Britt, but thank you so no much for joining us on the show to talk about this issue. Thanks for having me. No yeah, yeah. 6pm at the State Library tomorrow. <laughs> we just heard from Britt from Harm Reduction Victoria speaking to us about the vigil for Tangaraju and others murdered under death penalty in Singapore. The vigil will be held tomorrow, Wednesday 10th of May at 6pm in front of the State Library. For more information, you can go to Harm Reduction Vic's Instagram account at Harm Reduction Victoria. To quickly wrap up our show this morning, we listened to a clip from Brainwaves with Flick speaking with Stephanie from about um, challenging stigmas around mental illness in film and TV. We also listened to two Solidarity Breakfast clips where Annie McLaughlin first spoke with uh, Tanya Dijon about Driftwood the musical um, and then with Laura from the Save the Market, Preston Market campaign. Uh, 
We then spoke with Will Strzok from the Victorian Trades Hall about their campaign to end the misuse of non-disclosure agreements. And we've just ended there with uh, Ivka's conversation with Britt from Harm Reduction Victoria. As always, uh, this show will be followed by Accent of Women. And stay tuned to Breakfast for the rest of the week. We will hear from you again next Tuesday. Wala Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean to bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao, and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Are... 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.